Welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. This is where we explore third-way leadership in a polarized world, and we ask what it means to keep Jesus at the center through it all. We hope you'll find the conversation meaningful and that it equips you in your context with fresh approaches to facing some of the most challenging leadership and ministry questions of our day. And hey, if you're new to Jesus Collective, welcome! We are a relational network of churches and ministry leaders with a vision to unite equip and amplify a movement that is all about Jesus. You can look us up on social media or head to our website at jesuscollective.com to learn more, find out what it means to get involved, all that good stuff. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's get on with the podcast. God, thank you so much for the Jesus Collective. Thank you for uh, the wonderful people that are here this morning. Thank you for that time of worship. That was amazing, God, just to stand in your presence uh, and to know that that you are here with us. And so, Lord, we pray that you speak through uh, not just this session, but all the sessions, and you speak through your body, Lord, that are here and gathered together. Uh, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I've been tasked with the opening message, the opening uh, theme of what is the Jesus gospel or what is its Jesus-centered gospel. I want to I tell you a story uh, back in my early days. Back in my early days, um, I used to take city kids, inner-city kids, to uh, what we call the, 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 the gonk. Now, some of you are saying, what is the gonk? Well, the gonk is a short form for a gonquin park. So those of you who are from Ontario, excuse me, <clears throat> those of you who are from Ontario will know that a gonquin park is this incredible uh, nature reserve about five, six hours north of Toronto. It's just, it's just huge, it's beautiful, it's got lakes, it's got trees, it's got bears. <laughs> it's got snakes. I mean, it's a great place to bring inner city kids. And so every year I would bring a group, 15, 20 inner city kids to Algonquin Park and we would backpack in. And if you are familiar with trails or backpacking, you'll know that when you, when you follow a trail in the forest, you usually have these things. They're called trail markers, right? You understand what I'm saying? They're kind of tied on the branches of the trees and you just have to all, it's simple. You just follow these trail markers and it will lead you to your destination. Now, our goal at the time was we were to hike in about four or five hours into a campsite on a beautiful lake. And we do this every year. And so this particular year, I'm following the trail markers. We get to our, our campsite and we're there for a great weekend full of these inner city kids having a great time. They've never been in the great outdoors. They were scared. To, I mean, these kids are scared of raccoons. But when I told them about bears, when we had to put our, our food up in a, a, on a rope in between two trees so bears wouldn't get it, uh, they were really scared. But we'd have a great time. It was a, an ex incredible experience. On the way back, I'm following these trail markers to get back to the parking lot. But halfway through the hike, there's no more trail markers. Nothing there on the tree branches. And I'm in trouble. I got 15 inner city kids, and I come across this pathway where it, it diverges into three other pathways, no more trail markers. So I say to my crew, I go, look, everybody, I need you to look for trail markers because that's how we're going to, it's going to guide us, it's going to lead us, it's going to get us back to where we need to be. And one kid goes, what's a trail marker? And I said, well, it's this kind of thing that hangs off the tree branches and you follow it to get you to your destination. And the kid goes, oh, and he, oh, he pulls out of his pocket a bunch of the trail markers. And he says to me, oh, sorry, man, I was taking these off the branches on the way in. 
as a souvenir. I didn't know what they were doing on the trail, on the branches. And I'm like, great, great. What a kid, what a kid. And so we were lost. He took the trail markers. We didn't have a trail mark. We were lost in the forest. And when I think about that story, and I share that story, there is a reason behind that story, is I can't help but think of the church today because I think we have lost what a Jesus-centered gospel is. We have lost uh, an understanding of what the gospel is. We have lost the trail markers, the trail marker of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're lost in this forest of opinions. Oh, the gospel means this. Oh, the gospel means that. But without a trail marker, we will never fully get out of the woods of the confusion that we're living in today. The church is confused at what the gospel is. And, uh, you know, if, if the church is confused about this, how much more is the world confused about what the gospel is? If we can't figure it out, how are they going to figure it out? And I got to tell you, we are confused. I was at a conference before the pandemic. It's, uh, it was full of pastors and, 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 and brilliant professors. And the topic was the gospel, sort of what we're doing here for the next two days. And there was so much confusion as each person shared their different views of what the gospel is. So what, I, what I've been tasked to do this morning is try to, to, to come up with a, a definition or an understanding of what is the gospel. And so I want you to get your hiking boots on because we're going to hike through the Bible and we're going to figure out what is the gospel, especially the Jesus-centered gospel. Now, for in order for us to do that, we have to understand what is the the meaning of the gospel in the Greco-Roman world, within the cultural context, what did the gospel mean? Now, most of us here this morning probably will say, well, hey, man, I know what the gospel means. It means good news. And you're right. That's the English translation of the word gospel. So when you read good news in your Bible, it's the word gospel. Or if you read the word gospel in your Bibles, it's the word, word good news. So the gospel means good news. Simple, simple English translation. However, within the context of how that word was used, it's so important because this word gospel good news was uniquely attached to, directly attached to the emperor, to Caesar. And so what would happen is that the, the messengers in the Roman Empire would go around the empire and yell out the gospel. They would declare the gospel of Caesar. And the, the gospel of Caesar was this, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is king of kings. You need to worship Caesar. That was the gospel of the, of, of the Roman Empire, the gospel of Caesar. In fact, archaeologists have found all sorts of uh, inscriptions all over the Roman Empire uh, declaring the gospel of Caesar, that he is Lord, that he is king. Uh, one, I came across one inscription, and it actually says this, and it's going to relate to what I'm about to say uh, as we go into the scriptures. This inscription said, the birth date of our God has signaled the beginning of the gospel for the world. Talking about Caesar, the emperor. The birth date of our God, the emperor, has signaled the beginning of good news of the gospel for the world. And so you see that this world gospel, this word good news, was uniquely, directly, intimately attached to a declaration of talking about how great Caesar is, how he is Lord, how he is divinity, and how he is to be worshipped. That's the context of the word gospel in the day of Jesus. Now you understand why the early Christians used that word gospel and adopted it to describe Jesus. 
now we see that it, it's got incredible political ramifications, doesn't it? Now, now you know why Christians were martyred for their faith, right? Now you know why it was the Christians who said, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, and they would be killed for that reason. So the early Christians used this word gospel, they adopted this word gospel, and they uniquely and directly attached it to Jesus. That Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. That Jesus is King of Kings, not Caesar. That Jesus is the Son of God, not Caesar. That Jesus is to be worshipped, not Caesar. And this is why the early church suffered such persecution. Because they knew what the gospel was. The gospel is Jesus is Lord, amen? That's the gospel, not you not me. We're not Lord. Jesus is Lord. The gospel isn't a gospel to make us happy. The gospel is simply declaring that Jesus is Lord. Now, let's take a look at the PowerPoint here. I can't work it from here, so uh, I need the tech guys to do that. Let's take a look at the, the PowerPoint. As, as you can see in the first verse there, this is where we got our hiking uh, boots on. We got our backpacks. Here we are. We're, we're following the trail markers to see that Jesus is Lord, that this is a gospel trail marker. I just want to point out a few scriptures. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the beginning of the good news. There it is, the gospel right off the bat. <laughs> Mark is using that word gospel that has been attached to Caesar. He's saying here, the beginning of the good news, the gospel about Jesus, not Caesar, about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, a couple of things to think about here is this word gospel was never used to describe a, a letter or a book. It was always a declaration about Caesar as Lord. And so what Mark is doing, he's saying that in his letter, this whole letter is a declaration that Jesus is Lord. The whole life of Jesus that he's about to share with you through his letter, through the gospel of Mark, the good news. It shouldn't be of Mark, it's good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus that Mark is writing about. The whole book, the life, death, resurrection is the gospel that Jesus is Lord, because in the whole life of Christ, you see this lordship. He's healing. He's bringing uh, justice to the oppressed. He's conquering the works of Satan. He's uh, when when people killed him on the cross. When uh, when the, the the government, the oppressive government, put him on the cross. Uh, when sin put him on the cross. When death tried to overcome him. When Satan tried to overcome him. Jesus rose again from the dead. Why? Because Jesus is Lord, and that's what Mark is saying. The whole life of Christ is a declaration. And Mark also mentions that he is the son of God. Jesus is not Caesar. That was a word used for Caesar. Caesar was known as the son of God. Look, look at the next verse, Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33. It says this, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, a word used for Caesar. He will be great, and he'll be called the son of the most high. The word most high actually means that's why it's capital M, capital H there. The word most high means Lord of Lords above all things. Again, a term used for Caesar. The Lord God will give him the throne. Well, Caesar's on the throne of his father, David, and he will reign, which Caesar was doing, over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. All of these words are, are, have political ramifications. All of these words were used to describe Caesar. And the early... Christian writers here are using it, adopting it to describe Jesus. And finally, Luke chapter 2, verses 1, 10, 11. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus, I love the fact that they're using Caesar here as the backdrop of it all. This Caesar Augustus, who personally proclaimed he was the son of God. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And then later on in the verses we read, but the angel said to them, 
Do not be afraid. I bring you what? Gospel. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. And it is great joy to an oppressed people. For all the people, today in the town of David, a savior, another word used to describe but Caesar in that time, in that day, in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. And there it is, the Lord, another use, word used to describe Caesar. Do you see the political ramifications here? Like this, you know, when you read the Bible now, that when you read it within the context of the word gospel being associated to the power of Caesar, when you see now how, how the early Christians subverted that and use it to describe who Jesus is and describe the gospel as being Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. That's our trail marker right here, my friends. That should get us out of the mess. Jesus is Lord. That's the gospel. I like what N.T. Wright said about the book of Acts. And if you study the book of Acts, you'll see this. He says this, the book of Acts has nothing to do with the popular image of people dying and going to heaven. But it has everything to do with the enthronement of Jesus and the commencement of his worldwide reign. That's the gospel. Jesus is Lord. He is on the throne. Jesus is Lord. That's our trail marker. That's our trail marker. So how do we live this? How do we as the Jesus collective live out this beautiful message, this declaration? How does our life declare that Jesus is Lord? Or in the words of, of Paul in Philippians 1.27, when, when Paul says, conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. How do we do that? How do we conduct our, our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, one of the things is back in the Roman days, Caesar demanded to be worshipped. And that's why the early Christians were martyred. They, they wouldn't worship Caesar. They worshiped Jesus. They worshiped Jesus as Lord, not Caesar. Get that? Get that? Okay? They worshiped Jesus. And so the first thing is this. If Jesus is Lord, if we follow Jesus, this gospel that Jesus is Lord, this declaration, the first thing it, it, it means for our lives is that we must worship Jesus. Sounds simple enough, doesn't it? We must worship Jesus. But I'm not talking about the, the worship we get in our churches on Sunday with the skinny jeans and the cool worship hats and the, the cool band and the lights. I'm not talking about that. I mean, I like that stuff. It's fun. It's good. Um, it, 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 but, but, but I'm talking about a deeper type of worship, a, a worship that transforms our lives. We kind of experienced there with Christine uh, before I came on. That was, that was transformative worship. It was beautiful worship. This is the kind of thing that if we are to... Uh, follow this Lord, this, this gospel, if Jesus is the gospel, if he is Lord, that's the gospel, then it demands transformative worship. You see, in, uh, you see it on the PowerPoint there uh, in, in, in 2 Corinthians 3.8. I want to look at this for a second because it teaches us how to worship and, and what happens when we worship. It says, we all who with unveiled faces, and we did this this morning for a little bit with Christine, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Isn't that amazing? That when we, the key word there is contemplate the Lord's glory. When we focus in on the Lord's glory, when we, we stand in the awe and the presence, knowing that we are in the Lord's presence, his glory, what happens to us? It says that we are being transformed into the, his image with ever-increasing glory. That word contemplate, that's the type of worship 
we all need to be involved in. If we, when we contemplate, have times of contemplation, let, let me share with you uh, what I do in contemplate. When I, every morning I get up, I go to my chair, I sit in my big comfy chair. I kind of do what Christine did this morning. So thank you, Christine. I sit there and I, I breathe in the presence of God. I empty myself of me and I breathe in the presence of God. I, I, I have this incredible time just in, in quietness and stillness. And I let Jesus fill me up. In fact, some biblical scholars will say this. This is really interesting. That the word that the early Hebrews used to describe God was Yahweh, right? We all know that. It was Yahweh. Excuse me for a second. It was Yahweh. They, some of these biblical scholars believe that the Hebrews used this word Yahweh because it sounds like breath. Think about it. I don't know if you can hear me breathing in, but if you breathe in, let's say you're out for a jog and you're breathing in and breathing out, it sounds like Yahweh. Isn't that interesting? The early Hebrews knew that we are always in the presence of God, that we're always breathing in God and breathing out God. So when I spend my time in that chair in contemplation, I envision myself, I breathe in God. I breathe out Colin. And I get filled with the presence of Jesus. That's how worship works. You worship God, you contemplate, you allow him to invade you. And then you become like Jesus. As Paul says, we become transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. Now, some of you people, you know me. There's some people in their crowd there that know me. There's some people online who know me. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Colin, I know non-Christians who are better than you. And I have to say this in response to that accusation. Yes, it's true. There are non-Christians better than me. But if I'm this bad with Jesus, imagine how bad I'd be without Jesus. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so you know, this, this contemplation, I need to be, get rid of Colin and get filled in with Jesus. So I can be transformed in his, into his image with ever increasing glory. You know, one of my heroes uh, is Desmond Tutu, Bishop Tutu. He passed away recently, but Desmond Tutu is so, so incredible. Uh, in, the, in the horrible days of apartheid where our black brothers and sisters were being uh, put down, were being oppressed by a, a white government who had all the power, even though they were the minority, they had all the power, they had all the guns. And they were being put down. They weren't even allowed to vote, our black brothers and sisters in, in South Africa back then. And Bishop Tutu was the first black archbishop of Cape Town. And he came to prominence at this time. And a, a lot of people, you know, don't realize this about Tutu, but he was an extroverted contemplative. Do you like that? I love that. That's me. He was an extroverted contemplative. You'd see his personal life he, out, out, outdoors with people, his public persona. He was such an extrovert. He was so compassionate. He was so loving. But those who knew him well talked about his spiritual practices, his spiritual disciplines, his time contemplating Jesus so that he could be transformed into the image of Jesus. Uh, one of, one of the uh, people that worked with him said this about, about Tutu and about his contemplative life. He said it soon became apparent to his staff that Tutu, the great extrovert, and Tutu, the meditative priest, were two sides of the same coin. One could not exist without the other. In particularly, 
Tutu's extraordinary capacity to communicate with warmth, compassion, and humor. Now get this, dependent on the regeneration of his personal resources, which in turn depended on the iron self-discipline of his prayers, of his worship. The reason why Tutu is such an impactful person, if you look deep into his life, wasn't because he was courageous, wasn't because he was an extrovert, wasn't because of all these outside things that you see in Tutu. The real reason, the secret sauce in Tutu was that he would contemplate Jesus every day, focusing on Jesus, and he would be filled with Jesus to ever-increasing glory, as that passage says. He would worship Jesus, and he would become like Jesus. There's a great story, I'm sure some of you have heard it, where Tutu's preaching in the middle of this apartheid, he's preaching on civil rights at a church, and the, the army and the police show up with their guns and their tear gas, and they march into the into the cathedral and, and Tutu's preaching and, and they surround the congregation with their guns and with their tear gas and they're ready to, 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 to uh, basically make a major arrests. And Tutu's preaching and when Tutu sees them, he stops his sermon and he points at them. And he says this, he says, you may be powerful, very powerful, but you are not God. God cannot be mocked. You have already lost. <laughs> now, the unbearable tension in that cathedral at that time when he said those words, what happened next was amazing, they say, the reporters tell us, is that Tutu got out from behind the pulpit and came down on the main floor and he began to dance. So this, is it, the Holy Spirit entered, he began to dance with glee and he smiled. And then he said to the soldiers, pointing at them with a smile on his face, and as he danced with glee, he looked at the soldiers and he said, therefore, since you've already lost, we are inviting you to join the winning side. <laughs> and all the people danced. They all roared. They danced. And here's the cool thing. Some of the soldiers and the police officers joined them in the dance. The others just left the building. Where did Tutu get this, this energy? Where did Tutu get this spiritual power? I mean, that's the power of Jesus. No violence there. That was the power of Jesus. Where did he get it from? He got it from his worship. As he worshiped Jesus, as he contemplated Jesus, he slowly became more and more and more like Jesus. The ever-increasing glory transformed. If we're going to be people who are followers of the gospel that Jesus is Lord, we need to realize that we, we're pretty weak. It's pretty hard to, to follow Jesus as Lord. We need to be filled with Jesus, our Lord. We need to worship probably why Mother Teresa said that we are not social activists for the poor. Mother Teresa said we are contemplatives in the world. And she knew that by being a contemplative, she'd be filled with Jesus. So she would do the works of Jesus. But there's a second thing here, of course, and it's this. If Jesus is Lord, he demands, he demands our action. As we are filled with Jesus, we can't help but be like Jesus. And we can't help but act like Jesus. You know, one of the most transformative prayers in all of scripture is the Lord's prayer. And we all know it, but think of it this way. You know, think of the Lord's prayer. Our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then it says this, your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. When you begin to pray that prayer, again, contemplation, worship, you realize that it's a call to action. Your kingdom come, your will be done, not in the future, not when you come back, Jesus, not in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth, right here, where you live, on earth 
as it is in heaven. A friend of mine is a businessman, was in Toronto a few years back, and he he called me up and he said, look, I'm in Toronto, I'm doing some business, but I got to tell you something. Uh, I'm at a hotel. Half the hotel is full of refugees. It's crazy, Colin. They're, they're all over the place. You got to check this out. And so I next day I drove in my car. It was only like 15 minutes from my home. I went to the hotel. And sure enough, it was full with, with refugees. I, I walked through the front door and there were uh, people just hanging around at the front talking. And there's nothing to do. I, I walked into the lobby. I saw little children running around and playing games. I, I walked through the hallways. And I saw kids running around. And uh, I went to the front desk. I said, man, what's going on? Why are there so many uh, people just hanging around? And the guy at the front desk said, well, half the people here uh, are, are, are refugees. They're asylum seekers. Um, and the city of Toronto rented half the hotel because we have nowhere, they, they have nowhere to house them. And I was like, wow. And so I begin to walk around that hotel again and I begin to pray. Our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done right here in this hotel as it is in heaven. On the drive back, I just said, Lord, what, 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 what does your kingdom look like in this hotel? What, what is your will for this hotel? And I begin to feel convicted that we need to do something. And so I, I got out and went and spoke at churches and I called people. I said, Lord, the Lord is at work. The Lord is calling us to, to act out his will, to bring his kingdom uh, into this hotel. You know, who's in? Who's going to do this? And some young people signed up for duty. They, 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 they accepted the call. And isn't that the way it is? It's always the young people. I love the young people. They're the ones that always take those risks. And so we had a few of these young people, a couple of them come in and, and, and now you should see what they're doing. I mean, they're running Christmas parties for 800 children every Christmas at this hotel in North York, 800 kids. They run four parties, 200 kids per party. These guys are running summer break, uh, uh, summer camps for kids. They're running March break camps for kids. Uh, they're running after school programs. These guys are, are been praying and seeking God. What does God's kingdom look like? What is it? And they're doing it. And that's the thing. That's the point I'm trying to say is that when we're filled with Jesus, when we take the Lordship of Jesus seriously, we're going to do something. We're not just going to talk about it. We're going to do something about it. Let me give you a, a great story. Some of you uh, are familiar with the altar call, right? You're familiar with the altar call. You know, the preacher preaches. People come forward to the altar to accept Jesus as their savior, right? Here's this, the origins of the altar call. This is so cool. Charles Finney, the great revivalist invented the altar call. Charles Finney would go around the United States and he'd preach and he'd, he'd be uh, there at the altar preaching and then he'd say, come forward to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. People would come forward. But here's the thing, at the altar, when people came forward, now this is during the days of slavery in the United States. When people came forward to accept Jesus at the altar, Finney had a book with him at the altar and he had a, a document, a legal document that they had to sign. The legal document was this. If you're a slave owner, you had to free your slaves. And so at the altar, they would have to sign this legal document to free their slaves if they're slave owners. And not only that, but you also had to join the abolitionist cause. Because that's what Finney said. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means that Jesus is Lord. It's not just accepting him as your savior. It's freeing your slaves. In fact, Finney used to get in trouble because he would refuse to serve communion to slave owners. This is the gospel that Jesus is Lord. This is the gospel. It is the gospel that we need to take seriously. It's the trail marker that gets us out of the forest of confusion.
Jesus is Lord. Now we got a lot of homework to do today, right? Because then we got to figure out what is Jesus telling us to do? What does his kingdom look like? What does his will look like where we are? Let me end by telling you this. One of the things I love about the gospel of, of our Lord, that Jesus is Lord, is that, and this is so important, is that this gospel of the Lord, this, this God that we serve has such unstoppable love. It's a gospel of love, not a gospel of political power, not a gospel of coercion. It's a gospel of love. And when you worship Jesus, and when you're filled like Jesus, you can't help but get wrapped up in what I would call a hurricane of love. If you look at that last, at that last green slide, um, you'll see the little circle there. Um, there it is there. You see that little circle. It's like a hurricane. So when you worship Jesus, you become like Jesus. You become this hurricane of love that's sweeping across our nation. It's sweeping across our world. I saw this in action. I see it all the time. I see it at that hotel. I see it in government housing neighborhoods where we worship God. We're filled with God. I see this love swirling around, <laughs> this gospel of the Lord of love. I see lives being transformed and changed. I was in Brazil a few years ago before the COVID. And I was, uh, my wife and I were there to train some missionaries. And we had the good fortune of being able to live in a favela for two weeks. A favela is a, a Brazilian slum. And at night, you know, you hear the gunshots and you hear the screams and um, and we had, we had some rats visit our little place where we were staying. That was fun. Keep us warm at night. Um, but, but we were there and one night the missionary said to us, and these are incredible people. They were, we, we, we were worshiping God and, and we we're getting filled with God. And the missionary said, okay, now we need to go and do something for God. And so we all hopped in this van and we went down to a place called Cracklandia, which was Portuguese for crackland. And in this favela on this dark street, it was just full of crack addicts. And so we got there and we had, we had buns, Portuguese buns, uh, and we had coffee and we had uh, juice. And we get out of this, this van and we're walking down this beat up old road and it's really dimly lit and no one's there. But as we walked, all of a sudden these shadows came out of the sides. And I looked at these people coming towards us and they were gaunt, they were emaciated, they were, they were hungry, they were, some of them were naked, some of them were partially closed clothes. Some of them were missing their hair, their teeth. It was, it was, it was a lot of hurting people. And they came to get the buns and they came to get the coffee and they came to get juice. And so we gave it to them, the buns, the juice and the coffee. And as this was happening, I heard the spirit tell me, and he said this, as I, as I watched around me and I saw them eating the, the, the buns and, and drinking the juice and the coffee. I heard the Lord say to me, Colin, this is my body that was broken for them. And Colin, this is my blood that was given to them. And all of a sudden I realized that this hurricane of love, these people that would worship Jesus as Lord, who were filled with Jesus as Lord, were now doing actions because Jesus is Lord. They were filled with the Jesus. They were, we became this hurricane of love. And I realized that every one of those people, that God knew their names, knew their circumstances, had such a great love for his children, that this place, this Crackalandia, became holy ground through the hurricane of love. And isn't that the gospel, my friends? That we get 
we submit, that we get filled with Jesus so much in our worship as we worship him. We realize that we need him so badly. We say, Caesar isn't Lord. I'm not Lord. My church isn't Lord. Jesus, you are Lord. I need you to fill me with your power. And when we do that, we become more like Jesus. And the church should be this hurricane of love, this gospel that Jesus is Lord in the center of the hurricane of love, sweeping across our cities, our towns, our neighborhoods, our nations, and our world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again. It's so good to follow you as our Lord, not Caesar, not ourselves. And Lord, I just pray for my brothers and sisters here. Some of them are pastors or ministry leaders. I pray, Lord, that they will uh, be radicals, that they will uh, spend that time listening to your voice, spend that time in prayer, spend that time contemplating, thinking, and being emptying themselves and being filled with your spirit, Lord, so that they will have the courage and the bravery to lead like you, Jesus, and to lead under the, the reality that, that you are our Lord. Lord, I pray for our churches. That are, the only way, Lord, I believe revival will happen, God, is if our churches bend the knee and stop making congregants, Lord. Lord, we need to keep making or return to making you Lord of our church. You are the head of the church. Help us to overcome the fear of people. And as Paul said, we are not here to trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. Help us to be those radicals that were willing to die, those early Christians martyrs. Lord, we need to re renew our commitment to you as Lord. But it has to happen when we are filled with your presence because I'm too weak to be to, to have even have the power to obey you but I need you to fill me so I can be like you and obey you, Lord. So Lord, I thank you for your love, that you're a hurricane of love, that you've challenged us to join you in making your kingdom come and your will be done here, 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 right now, right here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out JesusCollective.com where you can hear stories, find info about upcoming events and workshops, maybe even explore getting involved through partnership as a church or an individual leader. Listening is such an important part of our journey as an organization. So please feel free to reach out to us with your ideas and your feedback. Drop us a message on social media or you can email us at connect at JesusCollective.com. Here's to keeping Jesus at the center.